Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for May 6, 2020. I have another interview for you folks this week. Uh, it is again related to the pandemic, so while I have that subject fresh on my mind, let me say, as I've tried to say in all these recent episodes, uh, I hope that you are staying safe and staying healthy, that your families and your loved ones are doing the same, uh, and please continue to do what you feel you need to do. I hope you're able to continue to do what you feel you need to do to keep uh, yourself and your families uh, safe and healthy in this, in this period. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show, returning, uh, returning, returning, really, he's been on many times uh, over the, the years, uh, going all the way back to my Patreon days, uh, returning guest, Alex Thurston. Alex is the, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, he focuses on the intersection of Islam and politics in Africa, uh, especially in the Sahel. Uh, if you haven't listened to my past interviews with Alex, I would I would highly recommend uh, doing that. They form, I think, a sort of collective body of material. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's fair to say. Uh, it's a series. It's like a series within uh, this series. Uh, but no, I would I would definitely recommend checking them out. Uh, Alex is is a, a, really an, an expert in this field and. Uh, somebody who knows what he's talking about. Uh, and the Sahel, which is the region that we're going to be talking about today, is one of the most uh, kind of volatile places in the world. It's uh, got that intersection of Islam and politics going just about as well as, uh, as any place. Um, for those of you who haven't listened to our previous episodes and maybe not familiar with what the Sahel is... Uh, I think it's especially relevant today because Alex and I are going to be jumping around a lot uh, to many different countries uh, as we talk about responses to the pandemic and as we talk about uh, the way that militant groups have tried to use the pandemic. Uh, so it may be useful to sort of define what we're talking about. The Sahel uh, at its broadest level is a geographic region that spans uh, the entire uh, width of Africa. Uh, it runs uh, between the Sahara Desert in the north, the really kind of hardcore Sahara Desert in the north, uh, and the savanna to the south. So it's kind of a transitional climate zone between those two regions. Uh, in terms of countries, it includes bits and pieces of many, many different countries, um, from Senegal in the west all the way over to uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea in the east, and it includes parts of Sudan, parts of South Sudan, Chad, the Central African Republic, Cameroon, Nigeria, Niger, uh, Algeria, Mali, Burkina Faso, Mauritania. Uh, so it's got a lot of, of countries in it. Um, we are going to be focusing on the western kind of... Uh, part of this region and we're going to be talking uh, again i expect we're going to be jumping around a lot because of the nature of today's topic uh but we're going to be talking about mali about burkina faso about niger uh, nigeria chad uh, probably that's it probably that'll 
that'll cover it. Uh, this is the region where you have a lot of active militant groups like Boko Haram, like the Islamic State West Africa province, which splintered away from Boko Haram. Uh, if you go a little further west to uh, kind of Mali and Burkina Faso, you have uh, you know Al Qaeda and Islamic State groups there as well. Uh, Mali has uh, you know one of the sort of granddaddies of the region. It's a group called Jamaat Nasr al Islam al Muslimin, uh, which is a was a merger of several different Al Qaeda uh, affiliates that all branched off of Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Uh, which was active, uh, is still active, really, although it's uh, it's focused more on its work to the south. But uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb formed in Algeria and was a major factor uh, in Algeria for quite some time. JNIM, as it is known, or GSIM, if you prefer, which is the English acronym. Uh, it's uh, tra the name, the translation of its name is Group to Support Islam and Muslims. Uh, either one is fine. Uh, but JNIM uh, is sort of the main splinter or offshoot, I wouldn't say splinter, main franchise, let's say, of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb now. As I say, it's uh, a merger of several AQIM affiliates that popped up in Mali. Um, it has in turn spawned its own uh, affiliates, uh, the chief one being uh, a group called Ansar al-Islam, uh, which is active in Burkina Faso. Um, the other major group in that region, in the sort of Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger region, uh, is uh, the other half of uh, the Islamic State West Africa province, which used to be known and sometimes is still called in the media Islamic State in the Greater Sahara. Uh, they are. It is functionally a, a separate organization, I, I, as far as I know, uh, from Islamic State West Africa province, the one that operates in sort of northeastern Nigeria and Chad and southeastern Niger uh, and Cameroon. Uh, but I guess for bookkeeping purposes, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Uh, maybe just it was simpler for the Islamic State to uh, kind of lump them together under the same name, lump these two disparate organizations together. Uh, anyway, the Islamic State... West Africa province, you know, second branch, uh, operates mostly on the, uh, in Niger, kind of Western Niger on the border region with Mali, uh, and Burkina Faso. It's become more active in Eastern Mali and Northern Burkina Faso, uh, in recent years. So those are the players in the countries that we're going to be talking about for the most part. Uh, I'm going to ask Alex about, uh, the pandemic response generally, how it's been in the region. And I'm going to ask him how these militant groups have tried to use the pandemic. Uh, this is something he's written about on his blog. Blog, uh, sahelblog.wordpress.com. I should also mention Alex has written two books, uh, Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement, and Salafism in Nigeria, Islam Preaching and Politics. Both of those are on sale wherever you like to buy your books. Uh, but he has a blog, sahelblog.wordpress.com, that I recommend uh, you know keeping in touch with regularly. And he's been writing about uh, lately about sort of the ways that these militant groups have tried or are trying, I guess, uh, to use the pandemic. He's a little skeptical about their ability to actually pull that off. Uh, and I'll let him talk about that. Uh, so we're going to get into that. And we're going to talk a little bit about non-pandemic related stuff, just sort of general militant activity recently. The Chadian government has engaged in a, a major campaign uh, against the militants uh, in, in that country. Uh, the Nigerian 
Nigerian government just announced that it was uh, undertaking a major campaign against Boko Haram and Islamic State West Africa. Uh, so we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about um, the impacts of these uh, efforts, which often get wrapped up in some unfortunate business uh, like human rights violations and the like. Uh, and we'll talk, uh, you know, generally about the effectiveness uh, of these campaigns and of France's uh, Operation Barhane. I hope I'm saying that right. Probably not. Uh, but the French military intervention uh, in the region and its, you know, its contribution uh, to not just defeating, you know, jihadists on the battlefield, but uh, propping up some regimes that engage in behaviors that fuel kind of local grievances and local governance issues that help uh, enable these jihadist groups to continue to function. So it's all kind of a, a, a vicious cycle, I guess. It's a land of contrasts, as they say. Uh, so I'm going to get Alex on here uh, on the Skype, and we will get started with the interview uh, in just a moment. Okay, I am being joined by Alex Thurston. As I said in my introduction, Alex uh, is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, he is uh, a scholar of Islam and politics uh, in the Sahel region, and we are going to be uh, discussing the pandemic and what it's done to uh, politics in the region and uh, militant groups as well. Uh, Alex, uh, thank you for being on the show again. This is you're like our uh, my champion uh, uh, <laughs> returning guest, so thank you for doing that. Thanks a lot for having me back. Um, so. Uh, the Sahel is kind of, uh, you know, it's one of those places that very easily kind of float under the radar, even though there's quite a bit of uh, activity going on there. And I, I wanted to uh, bring you on to talk about, you've been writing about sort of the uh, the pandemic and, and what groups like Boko Haram and Islamic State have been uh, sort of doing to exploit or uh, respond to the pandemic. And so I wanted to bring you on to talk about that. Uh, before we get into that, um, I was hoping you could take us, you know, kind of around the region and talk about how governments have responded to the pandemic. If you look at the uh coronavirus statistics, uh, the outbreak in the Sahel region has not been, does not appear to have been that bad. I mean, Nigeria's sort of gotten hit the worst, and for a country as populous as Nigeria, you know, we're talking about maybe 3,000 cases officially confirmed. It's not, it hasn't been a huge uh, outbreak. On the other hand, this is a region where you could very easily imagine um a lot of cases kind of falling through the cracks, not getting detected, uh, you know, and, and so there could be a much more serious uh, outbreak going on. I know Nigeria is already talking about like reopening major cities and pulling back on, on lockdowns. And uh, you know, I wonder if that's uh, a little bit too soon, but if you could sort of take us around the, the region and talk about uh, what effect the pandemic has had and what governments have been doing uh, about it, that would be great. Yeah, sure. And, and I mean, you, you already covered, you know, some of the key points in, in your question. I mean, yeah, in terms of official case counts, you know, if we if we take the Sahel and Nigeria, then definitely Nigeria has been the worst hit. I mean, everywhere, including in Nigeria, there's a problem of 
you know, lack of testing, which makes the situation a bit opaque. I mean, and that the lack of testing, as you know better than I do, is not, you know, a problem just for the Sahel and Nigeria, but obviously for the United States and many other places as well. Um, in Nigeria right now, I mean, there's there's a big, you know, outcry about a lot of deaths being reported in Kano, which is the the most populous state in the northern part of the country. So, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, these lockdowns are being lifted in, in the capital Abuja and in Lagos, you know, the, the sort of um, commercial epicenter of the country, which is which is deep in the southwest. Um, but there's still, you know, what seem to be a lot of excess deaths and, and just a lot of concerns about yeah, how, how this is going to, to play out. You know, other countries in the region, um, you know, the case counts are mostly like in the mid, you know, triple digits or, or you know, in Senegal, I think they've ticked up to something like, you know, over 1,300 now. Um, Mauritania has has said that they're sort of free of the virus. That That, to me, sounds quite a bit premature. I mean... Mauritania has a few advantages, I suppose, in being, you know, sparsely populated and being, you know, frankly, sort of peripheral to, to, to global capitalism, you know, and, and, and therefore, you know, not sort of as, as much of a travel destination or, or you know, um, you know, not, I mean, the, you know, there's been the analysis that the virus basically spreads along the circuits of global capitalism. And so Mauritania then is one of the last places, that, you know, that, that it would hit. Um, but as I said, I think, I think their declarations of victory over the virus may prove to be really premature. I mean, elsewhere in the region, you know, you know, Mali, Niger, Burkina, um, you know, full scale lockdowns, you know, like in Wuhan or Italy or something. I mean, that's just not feasible for, for a lot of these countries or for Nigeria for that matter. I mean, you know, too many people, uh, you know, depend on, basically what they can earn in a day to, to survive. And so to, to go into even a, a two week lockdown, it just isn't feasible for a lot of people. There's also been a lot of, you know, just mistrust or, or pushback against governments. I mean, that that's been most visible when it comes to mosque closures, you know, so in, in Burkina, in Niger, they've, they've backed down in both countries from, you know, closures of mosques and, and they've, they've, you know, reopened or partly reopened mosques. And in Mali, you know, if memory serves, they never really fully closed mosques. Um, you know, and I think that points to, you know, the mosque issue, I think points to maybe some wider, you know, just non-compliance with, with, with government directives to lock down. One of the things we've seen, which I think kind of highlights uh, what you're talking about is in Nigeria, you know, where there have been attempts at kind of uh, uh, putting lockdowns in place, at least in uh, larger cities, which again, you know, are, are kind of coming, you know, they're being lifted now. Um, but we've seen a lot of reports of kind of brutality by security forces trying to enforce these things. Security forces kind of overreaching is a regular problem in many of these countries, but has it been a particular problem uh, with respect to the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as you say, I mean, the most, you know, dramatic sort of videos and things that I've seen have come out of have come out of Nigeria. And yeah, I mean, you know, patterns of security force abuses against civilians, particularly in conflict zones, have been in in full effect during the pandemic. I mean, you know, a lot of that, I think, is a continuation of trends from before the pandemic. You know, um, as you say, the abuses have been going on for a long time. But yeah, definitely, 
you know, there have been abuses in the context of the of the lockdowns too. And that I think then, you know, fuels more mistrust and and yeah, friction between authorities and, and civilians. Right, right. And it's yeah, it's sort of I mean I think, you know, you kick off because uh, as you say, there's so many people who are in a subsistence situation where they are literally, you know, day to day, depending on uh, what they can earn. And you tell them, you know, they can't lock down or they have to lock down. They can't afford to do that. And then you get these clashes with police. And then that leads to, uh, you know, more resistance on the part of the people, because naturally, you know, you push uh, push people around. They tend to 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 resist that. Um, one thing that has happened in the region amid all of this, um, surprisingly, is a lot of other countries, uh, have kind of struggled with how to conduct elections during a pandemic. Uh, Mali went ahead with its parliamentary election. Uh, the first round was held on March 29th. The second round of the, the runoffs, uh, was held on April 19th. Uh, turnout was extremely low. Uh, I think like thirty-five percent, or yeah. somewhere in the neighborhood of that. Uh, and there, there were some reports of irregularities. I think one of the, you know, one of the opposition leaders was actually uh, kidnapped in late March, yeah. like yeah. Uh, just plucked off the streets, basically right before the election, the first round of the election. Um, what do what do we know uh, in terms of? results from that election and is that uh is there anything likely to to emerge you know differently in uh malian politics uh, after the election yeah so i mean you know the decision to hold the elections at all was was definitely criticized i mean you know there there weren't there weren't i think you know, Mali even had its first confirmed cases on something like March 25th, so just a few days before the election. But but even though the official case counts were low, already by the time even of the first round on, on March 29th, you know, there was, there was a lot of concern and, and, you know, some prominent journalists and others saying, you know, don't don't do this to the authorities, you know, saying don't don't go ahead with this. I mean, the elections were supposed to take place in, in 2018. The, there had been elections in 2013, and the deputies are supposed to serve five-year terms. Um, so the government had delayed repeatedly. I, I think that they felt, you know, for, for various reasons, but, but I think now they felt that the legislative elections were sort of a key part of a, of a broader plan that they have, including to sort of fulfill... Um, different conditions of, of a peace agreement that was signed with with rebels in the north in 2015. Um, and I think they see the legislative elections as a key step to being able to do other things like holding a, a referendum to change the constitution and, and even create a, a senate, an upper chamber for the for the legislature. Um, so they went ahead with the elections. Um, I, you know, in my view, wrongly, I mean, I, I think that um, you know, they definitely exposed a lot of people to, to the possible spread of the virus. Um, in terms of the, well, I, before I talk about the results, I mean, the, the kidnapping of, of uh, Sumaila Sise is, is really bad. I mean, he's he's the most prominent opposition figure in the country. He, he was the runner up in both the, the um, 2018 elections and in the 2013 election um, against the current president, uh, Keita. Um, he's not necessarily popular. I mean, when you see like opinion polls, like both 
you know, and, and those those can be taken with a grain of salt. But but for whatever they're worth, you know, they show both him and, and the president, Keita, you know, being viewed very unfavorably. You know, their their respective favorability ratings are, you know, you know, below 35 percent, I think, in both cases, you know. Um, but even though he's not very popular, it's still just a really, really bad you know, development in and of itself. It's a really bad optic for the country to, to have him kidnapped, right? Um, and he's been held since, uh, you know, since the 25th of March. And, and it's been, you know, a bit unclear who's holding him. You know, the, the kidnapping has been attributed to, to the, the jihadist, you know, sort of unit, uh, you know, under the, the control of, of a figure named Amadou Kufa that operates in, in sort of the the center of the country. Um, but even that is a bit unclear whether it's really Kufa who's holding him or not. Um, there's a new article out in, in um, Al Jazeera, you know, today or yesterday, um, interviewing his family, and they're complaining that, that the government has not been very, you know, communicative with them about what they're doing to secure his release. So it just, you know, kind of uh, symbolizes the the real weakness of the state and, and then the real, you know, hectic situation in, in the center in the north. Um, in terms of results, then, uh, the president's party definitely lost, you know, a number of seats. Um, I've seen various counts, you know, it looks like they lost at least at least 15 seats um, and maybe as many as 20, um, depending on the different counts you go with. They, they, they did particularly poorly in the capital, Bamako. Um, in the parliament, they have, you know, a coalition of, of other allied parties, so they haven't lost their majority. So they're down to the, the president's party in and of itself, you know, is, is down to something like 51 seats out of 147. But together with these different, you know, allied parties, uh, they still have a majority. But definitely, you know, it, it seems like a real rebuke, I mean, of, of the president, particularly in the capital. You mentioned that they, the, they went ahead with the election in part to, uh, you know, maintain the the 2015 uh, peace accord that the Malian government signed with uh, Tuareg rebels in the northern part of the country. Uh, I know there was a piece um, a couple of weeks ago from the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, really criticizing that peace deal. Uh, I wonder if maybe you know, as we, we're kind of transitioning here in, in the interview uh, into talking about militant groups and how they've responded to the pandemic, uh, what is the sort of uh, status of that accord and, and you know, what, what in your view needs to be done to kind of uh, get that process back on track? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the accord is, is you know, uh, it involves three major players, you know, three three main signatories. So the, the Malian government, the the rebels or the the ex-rebels, I guess one should say, um, you know, led led by um, very prominent Tuareg politicians in the north. And then a group of, I don't know, one could say maybe pro-government militias or, or you know, anti-rebel militias uh, also from the north. Um, some Tuareg, some some other ethnic groups. Um, so it's been, you know, a really really slow process. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, benchmarks and things that that the, you know, different signatories are supposed to achieve together, um, and and there's been a lot of, 
mistrust between the sides. A lot of the the steps that have been taken have have been very, you know, flawed or or have been subject to, you know, attempts to undermine them by by other players, particularly from the jihadists. So, for example. You know, one key uh, measure in the accords is that that the three signatories are are supposed to put their forces together to undertake joint patrols in different areas of the north. Um, you know, and that has been you know a difficult to achieve in and of itself, and then b sometimes those joint patrols and those combined forces have been targets of of jihadist attacks. So, it's um, you know, it's been it's been just a really slow road. Um, the Carter Center is the the independent observer, and and if you read their reports, you know they're they're very sort of um, openly concerned and and you know even sort of grim about about implementation. Um, the CSIS piece, I mean, pointed out accurately that you know. The conflict itself has really also changed since 2015. You know, a lot of um, the 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 rebellion of 2012 that that you know led to this accord being signed was was centered in you know what came out of the north as as had previous rebellions in the country, um, and the agreement was really meant to address you know the relationship between the north and and Bamako, the capital, which is in the south. But since you know, ironically, especially since 2015, the year the accord was signed, um, the center of the country, particularly the region of Mopti, has become, you know, actually much more violent than the north itself. Um, so, and the accord doesn't cover the center of the country. So in a way, you know, the accord uh, sort of reflects an outdated kind of understanding of even where the conflict is. Um, then the accord, and I'm not sure whether they said this in the CSIS piece or not, I, I don't recall, but but the accord, you know, does not include the jihadists, obviously. Um, there's been sort of a parallel effort to, to a, a kind of an incipient effort to negotiate with the jihadists, but that obviously has, you know, all kinds of complexities and pitfalls built into it. So, yeah, I mean, things are, you know things are in bad shape with the accord. I, I think also, you know, and I wrote this in a a report that I did in 2018 that that I think actually, you know, different actors, you know, including the signatories to the accord, um, can actually tolerate the status quo. I mean, I think that the 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 government in Bamako and and the the ex rebel leadership in the north, you know, uh, can can live with the status quo and even even derive some benefits from it. I mean. You know the the northern elite. Um, they hold seats in parliament. A, a couple of them just won, you know, re-election with astronomically high, you know, even one could say suspiciously high margins, you know, in these legislative elections. Um, you know, the 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 top elite, you know, government elite and the ex-rebel elite. You know, they're often not sort of personally targeted by the violence. Um, you know, there's been allegations that sort of a rent-seeking, you know, economy has popped up, uh, you know, around the the peace accord and so forth. And so, you know, in a way, you have this kind of uh, wartime economy that that different actors can live with. Well, one of the things that we've uh, seen kind of around the world uh, as the pandemic has set in has been uh you know sort of very broad kind of range of responses from militant groups or you know uh 
uh, I guess militant groups is itself a very broad term, but you've got, uh, you know, in some cases, like in Afghanistan, for example, where uh, the Taliban, you know, is a militant group that um, presumes itself and, and did govern the country at one time. You can quote, argue about how well they did it, uh, but, you know, views itself as a as a government, you know, in waiting, in a sense. Uh, their that response, you know, their response has been to sort of try to manage the crisis to to show their kind of, uh, you know, ability to to govern, basically. Uh, you've got we've got other groups in, in, you know, different parts of the country that have sort of stepped into or in different parts of the world that have sort of stepped in where governments are falling down in terms of trying to deliver aid and, and you know, uh, again, sort of demonstrate themselves as an alternative to uh, the state. And then there are groups uh, that have exploited the conflict or are trying to exploit the conflict to, um, you know, either carry out attacks or uh, as a sort of uh, point of contention with uh, the authorities to help recruitment, you know, sort of a, a piece of kind of rhetorical uh, grist, I guess, to, to inflame grievances and, and drive recruitment numbers up. Uh, how have... You know, broadly speaking, there's obviously an array of groups like this in the region that we're talking about. Uh, but how have those groups kind of uh, responded to the the pandemic in general? Yeah, I mean, this is this is really complicated to suss out. I think. I mean, for one thing, you know, I mean, my main my main sort of line on this is that is that it's too soon to tell because, you know. Uh, it's it's still I think for for the Sahelian countries and for Nigeria I think it's I think it's still quite early you know in the pandemic and how how it's going to play out for different actors including for the jihadists and I've been concerned because I think there's sort of a media and think tank narrative that's starting to take hold that that argues that the pandemic sort of automatically benefits jihadists that they'll automatically be able to um, you know, use propaganda to recruit amid the pandemic or that they'll automatically, you know, be able to uh, stage more attacks or that, you know, national and international forces will be forced to pull back. Um, and that's actually not necessarily happening. I mean, you know, definitely there's been a lot of jihadist propaganda, right? You know, talking about the pandemic as a, you know, punishment from God for, for the supposed wickedness of you know, uh, Muslims or human beings in general, or for the supposed wickedness of governance of governments. Um, you know, definitely, uh, as you say, like some jihadist groups or just militant groups in general have been keen to to try to step in and show that they can outcompete the government in terms of you know service delivery. Um, there was a good piece a couple of weeks ago at at the blog um, Political Violence at a Glance that was sort of comparing. Um, militant groups and 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 gangs basically and, and had some interesting points on that um but i think i mean i think it's too it's still too early to say that any particular attacks are correlated to the pandemic i mean so you know some of the think tankers and and you know journalists and so forth have been arguing you know even that attacks that that took place in march you know in in mali and nigeria and elsewhere um, were correlated to the pandemic. And those attacks, you know, like the kidnapping of, of Sumaila Sise or um, a Boko Haram attack actually in, in Chad in late March, um, those attacks occurred when case counts were still very, very low. Um, it's hard to sort of attribute those, you know, directly to the pandemic. I also think that, you know, actually, 
sort of jihadist efforts at governance may prove quite brittle amid the pandemic. I mean, you know, it's one thing to sort of, you know, like, I don't know, in, in eastern Burkina Faso, there's like a lot of reports, you know, from from last year or from previous years about jihadists, um, you know, sort of uh, supervising gold mining, kicking out the state, um, you know, restarting uh, artisanal mining that, that, that the, you know, Burkina state had cracked down on. I think doing something like that, to me, I think is much different from mounting a major public health response to to a pandemic. And I don't think that jihadists really ultimately have the resources to to really provide a, a public health response, especially the, the, the jihadist groups in the Sahel and, and in Nigeria. Um, and already, you know, a lot of people were basically voting with their feet and leaving you know, conflict zones. I mean, Burkina, the, the the displacements have been ticking up a lot this year already. You know, something um, seven hundred thousand people displaced or or more, and a lot of those have been displaced this year. Um, so I think actually that even more people may sort of vote with their feet now and leave areas of of jihadist control. Um, and then it's and then I mean it's it's also too soon to tell like what the effect will be you know, on the health of jihadists themselves. I mean, in a way, you know, they might be some of the last people to be infected with the virus because they tend to live in the peripheries and, and you know, keep aloof. But they're still connected to, you know, local communities and therefore to, to you know, to, to the global spread of the pandemic in some sense. Um, so it may be that it will take a toll on their own ranks at some point as well. I I do wonder if there's something to be said for, um, you know, not obviously if if you know if this continues and and uh, the pandemic gets worse in the region, I think you know it could expose the the weaknesses of these organizations in terms of their ability to actually provide relief to the people living in areas they control. But I wonder if there's something to be said for. Uh, the appearance of doing something like I know in in Mexico uh, there have been reports of gangs you know kind of criminal gangs just handing out like packets of food and like cash to people and and it's not obviously that's not a, like a comprehensive response to the crisis but it, it's sort of very public kind of very open and people can see it uh, as opposed to what for a while there you know it was, uh, a very kind of haphazard or, or, you know, ragged official government, Mexican government response to the pandemic. And I wonder if uh, if there's some recruitment benefit to just or propaganda benefit just to sort of being seen doing something in a, in a place where uh, governance is weak or there's, you know, been sort of a failure of the state to respond. Is, is there, you know, is that something to be concerned about? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a great point. And I think that, I mean, like you, like you were saying in the question, I mean, it's, it's partly what the jihadists do, you know, on their own terms, but then it's also, it's also about the contrast, right, between them and, and the government response. Um, I mean, it's really, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I've, I've been looking a little bit, I mean, this takes us outside of the zone that, um that, that we're talking about today, but but I've been, as I've been thinking about this, I've been looking a little bit about what's been written about, you know, the Shabab in, in Somalia and their responses to different famines there. Um, 
And what people write about it is very mixed. I mean, you know, some authors have pointed to, you know, the the Shabab doing exactly what, you know, you the kind of thing you were talking about, you know, of not only distributing food and aid, but but making, you know, very sure that they photographed it and disseminated it and, and made sure that that image of themselves, you know, as as the the you know, relief workers, in a sense, making sure that image was circulating. But then other writing, you know, has has said that they, you know, maybe particularly in, in 2011, so this is a while ago now, but that they, you know, that they denied that the famine was 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 going on at that time, that they um, were very sort of uh, obtuse about working with, you know, humanitarian groups and NGOs and so forth. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's. I don't know. We may see a lot of different responses from jihadists. I mean, obviously the smart ones will do, you know, what you're what you're saying, but there are definitely some dumb ones out there, you know, <laughs> who will try to deny, you know, that it's going on or right. Yeah, I mean, right. I think I mean the the Mexican government I thought had a had a good response actually when these sort of uh, stories started coming out of you know about gangs handing out food and cash to people uh the response was like you know hey if you guys really want to help like don't hand out food stop fighting us like stop engaging <laughs> in violence that would really help you know help us respond to the pandemic and i i mean that's sort of a canned response but i think it's something that if it if it got to that point i mean you could have you know governments in the region saying the same thing basically like you know if you really want to help you know put your weapons down and and stop causing trouble um, that I mean, that seems like a, a fairly effective response to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean, I should say, like, you know, we were we were talking about this a little bit before, but just to like, you know, reinforce the point, like, I mean, governments have definitely continued, you know, committing serious, serious human rights abuses during the pandemic. I mean, uh, you know, so on the one hand, I think that's evidence that they have not pulled back on their sort of, you know, quote unquote counterterrorism. On the other hand definitely you know governments are not uh not doing anything to improve their image you know i mean particularly in burkina and you know but also in in mali and niger and nigeria one of the things you you wrote about is you've done a couple of posts now at your your blog again it's sahelblog.wordpress.com i already said that in the intro but uh just to remind everybody uh, one of the things I found uh, most interesting uh, was you talked about uh, the what may play out if if these jihadist groups try to incorporate a kind of religious rhetoric into their uh, discussions of the virus. You know, as divine like divine punishment, uh, as you suggested, kind of you know getting into the uh, the sort of I guess, apocalyptic overtones that can uh, attend something like this. And your argument was um, what may happen if they try to really get into that that kind of argument is that uh, they're, uh, I think, uh, how did you put it? No, I'm not going to get it now. Uh, but the, the, their kind of weaknesses in that area, even though, you know, all these groups have their scholars or their religious kind of, uh, uh, you know, figures who claim to have some mastery of the material. Uh, but what your argument is that they they may be exposed for not really having that great a grasp on on the material, especially if they're kind of pitted against 
people who really know what they're talking about, who are talking about, uh, who are, you know, not extremists and are talking about different, um, you know, different responses or, or kind of offering a different message uh, about the pandemic. I was hoping maybe you could go into a, a little more detail on that topic. Yeah, I mean, you know, admittedly, this is kind of like, you know, wild speculation on my part. I mean, you know, how, how all this is going to play out, like, I mean, nobody knows. I mean, it's it's a, like a, it's a really, you know, strange and sort of emotional time for like Muslims around the world. Like, you know, the, the images of the Kaaba, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the, the sanctuary in Mecca being empty, you know, the mosques closed, particularly during, you know, Ramadan, the, the, you know, this sort of um, alternative, you know, version of the call to prayer where people are told to, to pray in their homes, you know, being being used. I mean, all this is like basically unprecedented in living memory for, for you know, almost anybody, um, almost any, you know, Muslim. Um, and I think, I mean, I guess what, I, I mean, one way this could go, I think, is, you know, sort of a greater interest, uh, you know, among Muslims in, uh, you know, sort of afterlife oriented messaging, right? And and even sort of, um, you know, a greater focus on individual piety, on the idea that, you know, the world is fleeting and so forth. Um, and most Muslims, I mean, I mean, you know, you know this, I assume all your listeners know this, but just to reinforce it, I mean, most Muslims were never that interested in jihadism anyway. But I mean, I wonder now, you know, whether, uh, that message will have even less resonance. I mean, <clears throat> the core sort of, you know, jihadist message has its own appeal, right? The idea that, you know, governments in different regions of the world are tyrannical, hypocritical, irreligious, like that message has a sort of intrinsic appeal, you know, that I think um, will endure. But yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of clerics who, who you know, work with jihadist movements are, are honestly pretty mediocre. And I'm not sure how sort of agile they're going to be in like addressing, you know, people's spiritual concerns at this time. Although, I mean, to add on to that, you know, there, there's also a problem in, in the Sahel and, and in, you know, different parts of, you know, the world in the Middle East and elsewhere of, you know, governments trying to cultivate their own scholars and, and having their own, you know, clerical bodies and so forth. Those scholars don't necessarily have a lot of credibility always with, with the mass public either. Um, so I don't, I don't know where it's all headed. It's sort of, it sounds sort of like, you know, my, my, uh, thing about people in, in the West, like who, who critique Islam and, uh, you know, try to offer or try to, you know, suggest that Muslims should do so, you know, act a different way or something like Bill Maher or somebody, you know, people like that. I'm like, I always watch these guys and think like, do you really think anybody's going to listen to you? Like, like who's going to actually listen to you? And it sort of feels like it could be the same with these kind of government branded <laughs> religious scholars. Like really people, you think people are going to uh, listen to you? Cause that seems like a, a credibility thing. <laughs> No, but, and you, you you see that with the issue of <clears throat> excuse me of of mosque closures. I mean, you know, the 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 government aligned clerical bodies were all basically in support of closing mosques, but then, you know, ordinary worshippers pushed back pretty seriously in in Niger and elsewhere, and and then the mosques were opened again. So, yeah. 
let's talk about some of the kind of counter militant counter insurgent operations and uh sort of the 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 state of things uh in the Sahel I I guess I don't want to say independent of the pandemic cuz what's independent of the pandemic at this point right. um but sort of you know things that you could imagine going on anyway and the first thing actually that I wanted to ask you about is not necessarily related to uh jihadists but we've talked in your you know previous uh, appearances on this show, which I, I told everybody to go back and listen to in the intro. Uh, but we've talked about sort of the two, I think, of the three or four uh, big regional conflicts going on in Nigeria. There's the the sort of Boko Haram, uh, ISIS, or Islamic State West Africa conflict in the Northeast. There's the uh, ongoing kind of herder farmer dynamic that, that runs kind of across the the middle band of the country, uh, and but the, increasingly there are there's this banditry problem in the northwest, and and it's you know you hear in more and more you know reports of like whole villages being overrun by just like armed gangs on motorcycles and uh, I, I'm curious as to whether there's any it, it seems to me like these things are all lumped together as like oh it's just bandits you know we don't know who they are they're just like rolling through and creating havoc and then vanishing into the ether somewhere there has to be more to it than that and I, I was wondering if you had any you know sort of uh, uh, sort of thoughts on on that, I guess uh, that situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, it's it's pretty opaque to me. I mean, you know, definitely the the scale of the problem points to you know some real sophistication on the part of these bandits, right? I mean, you know, they seem like pretty pretty powerful and significant organized crime networks. I mean, a couple of issues though i think make it even murkier one is i think you know as elsewhere like as with the boko haram conflict the nigerian military statements are 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 suspicious a lot of the time you know or, or the security forces in general you know i mean just in in you know looking over the news preparing for for this episode i mean you know multiple headlines saying you know you know, statements from from the security forces saying, oh, we, we neutralized 350 bandits or we killed, you know, 80 bandits in this place. I mean, just numbers that to me seem improbably high. Um, and then, you know, you also get accusations that, you know, Boko Haram has uh, infiltrated the bandits or, or that they are mercenaries who work for Boko Haram. I think that's very unlikely, you know, to be true. But But I guess what I'm saying is like the Nigerian media environment makes it i think actually even harder to determine you know who these people are and and you know how they're funded and and so forth i mean what what seems to be like at least you know the basic situation is you know northwestern nigeria has some of the poorest states in the country um the weakest government capacity there's also, you know, uh, unregulated, you know, mining areas, artisanal mining areas. There are, um, you know, large herds of cattle. So there is a lot of, there are a lot of resources for these bandits to prey upon. 
Um, there's also issues of sort of border crossings. So, you know, groups who are able to cross between states or to cross between Nigeria and Niger, um, relatively easy, even despite, you know, efforts by, by the Nigerian government to, to close the international borders. Um, so, yeah, again, to me, it's murky who they are, but they, they seem to benefit from these couple of, you know, vulnerabilities in that region. To move into uh, sort of the more traditional <laughs> stuff that we talk about here, uh, jihadist uh, concerns, um, I was uh, I was going to ask you uh, before we get into sort of the the major kind of activities that have been going on in Chad and uh, Nigeria and Niger lately. Um, what's the status of uh, the relationship between Boko Haram and uh, Islamic State West Africa, which, uh, you know, f- kind of famously splintered off of Boko Haram a couple of years ago, uh, and seemed for a, a while, I mean, the dynamics seemed to be uh, that Islamic State West Africa was sort of in the ascendance, uh, Boko Haram was, you know, being not, you know, between the split and, uh, you know, the response from the Nigerian military, Boko Haram was sort of confined to a a small area in northeastern Nigeria and was sort of on the defensive, uh, kind of on its uh, on its heels a little bit. Um, there seems to be uh, kind of a resurgence, to me at least, as I you know sort of follow the, the the news. Seems like there's some resurgence of Boko Haram activity and kind of an expansion uh, of Boko Haram activity. Although, uh, I I also find that even you know. A couple of years after they split into two different organizations, a lot of media outlets still talk about Boko Haram and don't differentiate uh, between these two groups, and so or, or seem not to differentiate between them. Uh, I wonder if if uh, you know that's part of what I'm seeing, or if there really is kind of a, uh, a there really has been kind of a, a resurgence of Boko Haram activity, and I I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean this is this is. You know, another, sorry to always say the same thing, but this is another like opaque area. I mean, you know, the the, the cohesion of either Boko Haram or, or Islamic State West Africa province, you know, ISWAP, the, the cohesion of either of these groups is sort of up for debate. I mean, a, a colleague of mine um, did a study based on like looking at times of attacks and then calculating travel between different locales. And anyway, this kind of like, I don't know, uh, geospatial analysis that's like way above my pay grade. But he like he and his colleagues concluded based on that, that there may be as many as sort of 50 or 60 different relatively autonomous, you know, units of of both of these factions. Um, You know, so on the one hand, um, you may have two highly cohesive, you know, well-organized factions, or you may have a ton of people you know, basically running around at the unit level who are loosely under one of these names. Um, and there seems sometimes to be, you know, field commanders who switch, you know, allegiances back and forth between the two groups. Um, with that said, I mean, you know, there was this attack in Chad that killed something like 92 soldiers in, in late March. Um, I've definitely seen that attributed to, to Boko Haram, to Abu Bakr Shakao's, you know, rump Boko Haram. Um you know, and, and when the two groups split in 2016, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, analysis and the U.S. government and so forth, you know, said that, that 
ISWAP had taken the majority of the fighters. You know, there's this one estimate, <clears throat> excuse me, from 2018 that continues to circulate that said that ISWAP took something like, you know, 3,500 fighters and left Boko Haram with 1,500. Um, you know, so ISWAP has been seen as militarily stronger, more politically sophisticated, a little bit softer in its messaging. On the other hand, you know, Shakao is, is one of the ultimate survivors out there and and you know for for now you know more than a decade has been you know waging this insurgency against now basically four governments you know in the in the lake chad basin region um so yeah i mean you know they may have been responsible for this attack you know on on chad um chad then mounted this counteroffensive, which from from what i've read you know was was directed at both Boko Haram and ISWAP in a sort of equal opportunity sense. Um, a lot of the, you know, what I've seen of, of that and what I've written about it, you know, suggests that um, whatever gains Chad has made in this counteroffensive are not necessarily going to be permanent. Um, that Chad doesn't necessarily have the capacity to like sustain some mass counteroffensive and that Nigeria and Niger and so forth are not also prepared to step in and consolidate whatever gains Chad has made. So, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, there's a remarkable tenacity for both Boko Haram and Iswap. The Nigerian government also just announced that uh, it's been carrying out its an operation against both Boko Haram and Iswap uh, for the last like week or so, and they've killed like 130 some members of uh, kind of combined of both organizations. Um, your conclusion, I think, you know, in writing about the uh, Chad's kind of anti-militant operation crackdown uh, was that there's a certain level of this activity, of insurgent activity, uh, that these governments tolerate, basically. And I don't know yeah. if it's because they don't have the resources to press uh, a campaign, so it's sort of like hit and run like you know when it really when they really pop up and get intolerable you kind of strike and do some damage and it seems clear from the the numbers that that get thrown around uh in terms of the the fighters that they kill that when when these countries actually focus on the problem and go after these groups they can do some damage um but they can't I think the sustain numbers are padded, it though i have to, i have to say i think okay the numbers are exaggerated okay yeah. um but the point stands that they can do some serious damage. That, right. that I don't agree with. Yeah. Right. And so, like, it seems to me that uh, this was sort of the problem that the G5 Sahel organization was meant to fix. Like, the fact that none of these countries individually can sustain a campaign against, you know, Boko Haram or ISWAP or, uh, you know, these other groups uh pooling the idea was to pool everybody's efforts uh and create something that was devoted to you know, this this fight that could could take care of this problem uh, um but but that hasn't worked out and i wonder like is it is it because of a, a lack of resources or is it because of you know a sort of decision that uh like a, a conscious choice that you know, we don't really mind having some level of this activity going on, and and it's not worth it to us to to devote the resources it would take to to bringing it to an end. 
Yeah, I mean that's 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 basically my take. I mean, is is a I think I think that these regional forces, you know, both the what's called the multinational joint task force or MNJTF, you know, involving the the four Lake Chad countries, you know, Nigeria, Niger, Cameroon, Chad, and then with sort of token participation from Benin. So you have the MNJTF in the in the Lake Chad Basin region, and then you have, as you mentioned, the G5 Sahel, you know, focusing especially on the uh, Mali, Niger, Burkina borderlands. I think this idea of regional cooperation is is sort of a fantasy. I mean, and I think that the Chadian counteroffensive shows that 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 sort of when the chips are down, countries will act on their own. And Chad was very visibly frustrated with Nigeria and was even, you know, sort of hinting at pulling back on on its commitments to some of these regional organizations. And I, I think, you know, you got a lot of commentary in the wake of the, the Chadian counteroffensive saying, you know, these regional organizations are the key to, you know, stabilizing and consolidating. And that that would be nice if 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 that happened. But I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I just don't think I think there's enough at least like mistrust or divergence of interest between, you know, these different countries that, that they're just never going to sort of integrate in the people in the way that people would like. I mean, yeah, and then in terms of, like, tolerance for conflict, I mean, you get sort of hardcore conspiracy theories, you know, the idea that, you know, the Nigerian state sort of directly abets Boko Haram and things like that. I don't I don't think that's true, right? I mean, I've, I've you know, I've never seen sort of evidence that would back that. But the softer version of that, the idea that, you know, people that that government or military officials can tolerate the conflict or even that they can benefit from the kind of war economy that has cropped up around the conflict that's totally plausible to me i mean you know nigeria you know i think sometimes it can be unfair but but nigeria has a reputation for corruption for for a reason and a lot of that is government corruption and so you know the idea that you know, people are siphoning off money from, from large security budgets for their own private gain. I mean, that's completely plausible. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one factor in, in allowing these, you know, conflicts to continue. And then and then also, you know, it's it's hard. I mean, it's it's hard to go into, you know, extremely rural areas with with bad infrastructure and to sort of try to 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 hunt out, you know, again, maybe even unit by unit you know, people who are fighting on basically their own terrain. I want to ask you about um, sort of uh, the ways in which efforts to combat jihadist groups in the region can uh, work instead to the benefit of those groups. And there's two things that I wanted to, uh, to, to ask you about. First is the sort of uh, ongoing French intervention in in the Sahel, uh, and you know their operation, which uh, is meant to counter, um, you know, Al Qaeda and, and the Islamic Maghreb, sort of you know its offshoots in Mali and uh, in Burkina Faso, um, and has on the other hand participated in activities like. Uh, you know, airstrikes on rebel convoys that that are you know sort of chatty and rebel convoys that are uh, challenging what you know is a is a dictator basically in 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 chat or a dictatorship authoritarian government let's say, um, and I, I you know I wonder if that operation and sort of propping up states that maybe uh, are not kind of 
uh, practitioners of good governance, let's say, uh, is you know kind of achieving the opposite of its purpose. It's kind of uh, you know uh, reinforcing these governments that exacerbate the problem by uh, you know creating grievances for people. And the second thing I wanted to ask about, related to this, I guess, uh, you know, there was just a piece a few days ago in World Politics Review about. Uh, you know, sort of the counterinsurgent efforts in Burkina Faso and Mali uh, and the human rights abuses that have gone along with those programs. Uh, we talked earlier in the interview about the Nigerian, you know, security forces brutality and enforcing lockdowns, which is indicative of, you know, their approach in many respects to other conflicts, uh, including the, the Boko Haram conflict. Um, you know, those human rights abuses then create opportunities for jihadist groups to appeal to the people who have been abused and you know have been aggrieved by that sort of thing uh and to to create messaging for them to drive recruitment and uh, so uh you know how much of what's going on is sort of fed by these efforts ostensibly to stop these movements or to to uh, to address these movements yeah i mean no, these are these are core questions. I mean, I think I mean, just to start with a basic point, I mean, I think that, you know, the the nucleus of some of these conflicts, you know, precedes the, the state abuses, right? I mean, they, they don't necessarily always start with state abuses. I mean, but then at, at an early point, you know, in a lot of the, these different conflicts, you know, with with Boko Haram, with you know the the group um, called Ansar al-Islam, or the you know the the sort of defenders of Islam in Burkina Faso. You know the the, the response of the security forces really really exacerbates things. And and there's been some I mean quantitative you know studies that that bear this out. I mean there was a, a report by the UN Development Program. I think it's called Journey to Extremism in Africa, where they focused on Boko Haram and they focused on Al-Shabaab. Um, in Somalia, and and you know they concluded that sort of a negative interaction with the security forces was was the sort of you know uh, most likely determinant of, of pushing somebody to join a, a jihadist group. Um, yeah, so I think that you know then in different parts of the region the the response then becomes part of the conflict itself, and and you get these sort of uh, cycles of violence and, and, you know, and, and this came up with the bandits and also with the, with the Boko Haram, I mean, response, uh, you know, as I was suggesting before, the Nigerian military in particular seems to have sort of a body count mentality. Um, you know, and, and when you have that sort of mentality, when it's all about saying we killed, you know, this hundred number, you know, the, you know, 350 terrorists, we killed this, you know, high number of terrorists, then, you know, I think a mentality like that can kind of encourage these, these abuses, um, so yeah, I mean, and, and there's been a lot of efforts, you know, to, to provide, you know, by, by, you know, European countries, by the United States to provide human rights training and so forth. But I think that, I mean, one, I think that the, the relationships can be, you know, really fraught between, between, you know, foreign militaries and, and the national militaries of these countries. There's, there's an author named, um, it's either Dennis or Denny Toll, um, who has a good piece in, in a good article in the, in the academic journal International Affairs about the relationship between um, European Union trainers and the Malian armed forces. And just saying, you know, that that the relationship is really sort of problematic and, and that, 
yeah, that, that outsiders can't just walk in and start dictating to, to, you know, national armed forces, you know, how they're going to reform and, and start telling them what to do. So, you know, the, the whole idea of like security sector reform is, is very fraught. Um, yeah. And then with, with the foreign presence more, more broadly, I mean, yeah, the, you know, France's operation Barkhane, which is their, their counterterrorism mission for the Sahel has, you know, they, they've claimed a lot of sort of tactical successes. You know, we, we killed X leader, we, we disrupted this camp, so forth. Um, but they've also at times been embroiled in, you know, working with local militias who are, are really problematic, you know, who commit abuses of their own, um, and, and then the foreign presence, I think, can also, the French presence in Mali in particular, can also sort of um, cast a shadow over, over, over the possibilities for nonviolent resolutions. I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, the idea of dialogue between the Malian government and, and jihadists, that, there's a lot of problems. You know, there's, there's a lot of pitfalls. But, you know, France's at times sort of hardline anti-dialogue stance has, has not been particularly helpful. Um, and then the foreign forces can become targets of, of resentment or even targets of direct attacks themselves. Um, so France is, I mean, France is pretty sort of mired in, in, in Mali and increasingly in Burkina as well. Um, at this point, you know, gone to my head, I, I would say they do more harm than good. Well, but they're, their heart's in the right place. No, I don't know. I don't know what to say there. It's like, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I think it's, it's like a, a, a need that, uh, need to hold on to your colony, basically. Like, even after you've let it go in a political sense, there's like this weird sense of ownership over these places that, uh, you know, I don't understand and is usually counterproductive, but, uh, or almost always probably counterproductive, but you see it, you know, kind of uh, in in so many cases in, in France and Britain, even the United States sort of, uh, you know, there's this sense of like, well, we had, this was a colony, one, our colony once, and, and we still basically own it, so we have to be involved, and uh, it's almost never a good idea. I mean, I guess the rebuttal would be from from the French side, you know, do, do you want to see the government of Mali fall to jihadists, you know, or do you want to see the government of Chad fall to rebels who cross over from from Libya and sort of, you know, or from Sudan or, you know, wherever it may be and sort of blaze a trail to the capital and overthrow Idris Deby, you know, um, you know, I think there's there's a cold calculation in in Paris that. You know, even Debbie, who I would call a dictator, you know, the, the president of Chad since 1990, definitely a dictator in my view. You know, I think there's a cold calculation in Paris that, you know, he he provides a kind of stability or what they see as stability that, that they view as better than the likely alternative. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, the French relationship with Debbie in particular, but also with some of the other leaders can can pop can prop up extremely problematic and, and repressive governments. Um, I, I mean, this is happening in real time. You know, France is sort yeah. of, they pay lip service to the the government of national accord in Libya, but in reality, they're supporting Khalifa Haftar, who would be exactly the same type of leader. I mean, he would be an authoritarian, military-backed uh, dictator if he got into power, or, you know, uh, kind of solidified his hold on power. He controls half the country. Uh, but it's the same thing. It's sort of this choice for stability over the unknown but 
the unknown may very well be something better. It, it may be something that uh, kind of cuts, undercuts the, the argument that the extremist groups use uh, to stay, you know, stay active and stay, you know, kind of to thrive uh, in terms of their message. If you put a different government in place that is more responsive to the people and more kind of, uh, and less authoritarian, then, then you know, you may undermine that. And it seems like, you know, the choice for stability leads you to instability, in fact, you know, it's it's sort of, you know, winds up in the opposite place. But there's this kind of short term, I guess, short term versus long term calculation or known versus unknown calculation. And again, it gets back to uh, there's a certain level of activity that we can tolerate, sort of, you know, jihadist activity that we can tolerate. And we don't want to risk the possibility, I guess, of it of it getting any greater than that. But we're also not right. willing to take the chance that we could do something that could reduce it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm reminded um the the journalist um Ben Taub who's who's with the the New Yorker and and just won a Pulitzer for his um uh, writing about a, a a Mauritanian who was released from Guantanamo. He he wrote a piece. I want to say, well, maybe last year, or the year before, about um I, I think it was last year about um uh those French airstrikes to protect the Chadian you know government and and he he really um. You know, has some nice reflections on this kind of dynamic and, yeah, the the brittleness of some of the governments in the region. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to end this because that's <laughs> that's really depressing. But it's the state of of things, and I don't I don't see anything changing it. I mean, these are the calculations that that get made, and uh, you know, the cycle just perpetuates itself. Uh, so. Let's just leave it on a depressing note, I guess, and wrap this up. Uh, Alex, thank you for being on the program. Again, that's uh, sahablog.wordpress.com. Um, I already plugged your, your books in the intro, so I, I won't do that again. But, you know, definitely people should uh, go out and and, uh, and look for those if you're interested in Boko Haram, if you're interested in sort of Islamist insurgencies in the Sahel uh, check those out. And, uh, you know, again, thank you for coming on the program and, uh, please, uh, you know, stay safe, you and, and your family, uh, and, uh, healthy and, uh, you know, so that we can do this again sometime. Thanks for having me on. Great to, great to record another episode. Thanks, Alex. Once again, I want to thank Alex Thurston for coming on the program to walk us through what's been happening in the Sahel lately, especially amid the pandemic. Uh, Alex's blog is sahelblog.wordpress.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Sahelblog. I'll post links to both of those in the show description. Uh, I want to apologize. I know my audio was a little bit choppy in parts here. I hope I was able to at least uh, mitigate it uh, in most spots. Uh, I'm getting used, still getting used to the, the software I purchased recently to record Skype calls, uh, which I think is a marked overall improvement from the days when I would hold a microphone up to my computer speaker, try to record them that way, uh, but it's still clearly a work in progress. This was much better than the last time I tried to use that software, so hopefully next time uh, it will be right on the money and, and that will be the end of our struggles here. Uh, until next time, as always, thank you for listening. And uh, take care of yourselves. I'll talk to you soon.